Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. I'll be talking today to William Howell, who is the author of Thinking About the Presidency, The Primacy of Power. Will, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Heath. Wonderful. I, I really enjoyed the book. Uh, enjoyed the um, so many different aspects of it. Um, I know a little bit about you, but but not a lot. So maybe we can start by just uh, hearing a little bit more about where you are, where you've been, and, and sort of where this book falls into what you do. Well, um, I am a faculty member at the University of Chicago, where I teach in uh, the Political Science Department and the Harris School of Public Policy, and. My research for some time has really focused on aspects of executive power. And um, about a year and a half ago, Chuck Myers, who was the editor at Princeton University Press, came to me and asked if I'd be willing to write a kind of a, a, a big thought piece um, and to sort of lay out what I think are the dominant themes on the American presidency as a part of a, a new series he was interested in starting. Um, wherein he asked people who had written on uh, on particular topics to weigh in. And so the series is sort of thinking about fill-in-the-blank. Mine is thinking about the presidency. Other people have written about thinking about leadership, this sort of thing. It's a brand-new series, so we'll actually see where it goes. Uh, but the but the book effort was to try to step back from, you know, the, the kind of standard scholarship that I'm used to writing um, and – and, and speak to broad themes about executive power um, uh, and in a way that is accessible to more than just, you know, my, my closest colleagues. Yeah, that, that's great. Now, you didn't write this alone. You had some help with this. Maybe you can tell us about your, uh, your, your assistant on this. Yeah, um, I, I did have uh, an, an assistant, and um, David Brent who is uh, a former student of mine, he's now a friend, um, he took, as an undergraduate, my president, advanced presidency seminar at the University of Chicago, and he was hanging around for a couple of years afterwards, and I brought him on um, to help me initially to just track down some stories and help me with some of the early drafting of, of, of some of the case studies. But he, played, he ended up playing a more and more prominent role and was just really fantastic, made big contributions to this, to this volume, and I'm happy to say he's now um, he's gone into the business. He's he just finished his first year as a in a political science uh, PhD program at Yale. Oh, how great! And you know, I, I think the book is um, you know, as you mentioned, you really do step into the deep end um, of of these issues. You know, you're really uh, you know confronting the big, broad themes in, in the study of the presidency, and it really does come across. D- despite that, um, this is a um, Kind of a streamlined book um, in terms of its length and, and its and its focus and and your thesis is is pretty simple and in some ways the last sentence of the book sums up the book pretty well and you write power is every president's north star. Um, what do you mean by that? How does that um, that that sentence sum up the, the a central argument that you're making here? Well, the way we get from is, is to is to recognize what I think is a basic fact about the presidency. Um, actually, there are two facts, and they stand at odds with one another. The first is that we have these incredible, these outsized expectations of um, of our president. Um, there, it's hard to think of any domain where where 
the president is given a pass where you can say that's above my pay grade or that's somebody else's job. The president on everything from right, Midwestern droughts to to school shootings to uh, warming climates to security threats um, in in every part of the region of the globe uh, is meant to not just have a position but to be out in front identifying what the problems are and what ought to be done about them. And so, and this is a, this is a fact of, uh, the modern presidency in particular. Um, but it speaks to, you know, what, what the core incentives are that presidents have, right? How are they possibly going to meet these expectations and thereby placate, uh, today's public and tomorrow's historians? Which strike me as the two most relevant audiences for, for the presidency. On yeah. one hand, let me just put mm-hmm. on the other hand, yeah. that's what's going to get us to this preoccupation that presidents have with power. On the other hand, if you read Article 2 and you look for explicit delegations of authority that allow presidents to meet these extraordinary expectations, you're going to be hard pressed to find them. Um, it's, uh, they're, they're pretty slim pickings in Article 2 and the, what, what's offered and where presidents have had, um, have found sort of a basis for, you know, building a constitutional argument for vast authority is by reading deeply into a handful of what are, by most accounts, really vague delegations of authority about, you know, the take care clause or given the executive power. It's not clear what the executive power is. But you've got to sort of read deeply in there to have a chance. Um, and so, not surprisingly, presidents do that, but they don't stop there. They look all over the place for opportunities to expand their influence um, and to claim power when it isn't given to them, to encourage uh, Congress to delegate broadly, and having done so, to guard that power which has been given to them. And so power really for presidents is a central preoccupation because without it, they can't possibly meet these expectations and thereby shore up their legacy, thereby placate a contemporary public. And so the book is really trying to recognize the centrality of these power considerations and then try to explain how that manifests in our politics. Yeah, and I want to go back in a little bit to the Article 2 of the Constitution, but before we get there, um, you provide some case studies uh, early in the book. And I enjoyed your discussion of the security directives, um, uh, first, so why is it that each president feels the need to change the name of these memos? It would seem like um, that would be such a frustration to scholars having to deal with a, a sort of these simple name changes. So why do they change the names? And more important than that, um, why are they so important to understanding presidential power? What is, what is, uh, what's the role that they play? Well, I mean, national security directives are interesting and important in their own right. Um, because presidents have used them to affect a lot of meaningful policy change. Um, where national security directives are important for the argument that I'm trying to build in this book is that if you look over time at their usage, they are made and remade and adapted by subsequent presidents, each trying to build off of the innovations of their predecessor and trying to push outwards on the boundaries of their authority. And so renaming it is part of it, 
but also thinking about, you know, how these things are going to be classified, what kinds of things you're actually going to do with these national security directives, what kind of status these these policy directives are going to have, these policy directives that aren't to be found in the Constitution, right? I mean, they trace back vaguely to to a law enacted by Congress, and that th- you have this law that's been enacted in the, in the in the late 40s that then presidents are just pushing outwards on and trying to build a more robust policy instrument that they then can use in order to affect policy change. And I think looking at not just to the import of national security directives today, but the the project that successive presidents have engaged in, the project of building a new policy tool, um, is what I, I, I'm hoping to draw readers' attention to. And that this is a central, again, preoccupation of presidents. Here they go. They're, they're, there's this thing that's going to be called national security directives. Well, it's going to be called national security directives today. Tomorrow it might be national security decision directives. Or, mm-hmm. right? it's, a, it's a moving target. Um, yeah. And they're in that part of you know their effort to build their power, and right. to elude the efforts of adjoining branches of government, who are trying to limit or oversee or monitor or assign reporting requirements to these policy directives. And I think that's an important part of, of, of the name change in particular. Yeah, one of the sort of pieces of the book is this tension um, between interpreting presidential power as inevitable uh, or by design or or what exactly it is and and this this sort of you begin this discussion uh, with your discussion of the ambiguity of article 2 of the constitution and some of the competing interpretations of of what's down on paper what 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 does that mean what does it mean what did it mean in, in the time and place it was written and what does it mean ever since and so maybe you could just walk us through a little bit about that ambiguity of, of Article 2 and, and what some of the arguments are about what to make of it and, and how you settle that score, what you ultimately make about uh, Article 2. Well, I alluded to this earlier, that, that if you're looking for very explicit delegations of, of power to the president, you're, you're going to be hard-pressed to find them. Instead, there are these... Um, well, these provisions that... Presidents want you to believe are laden with deep meaning about the executive. The president the president alone is given the executive power. Or the president is charged with taking care that the laws are faithfully executed. And so then what you might say is, well, what does it mean to say that the president has this power this or this responsibility to take care that the laws are faithfully executed? And, and particularly when law itself the body of law is laden with ambiguity. The different laws, conf- one law may conflict with another law. Um, and in the presence of that kind of tension, how are presidents meant to resolve this, right, this tension? What are they supposed to do about it? And, and what I, what I want to suggest is that, well, it's, the Constitution doesn't provide a whole lot of guidance on these matters. It is certainly possible to read deeply into uh, these Article Two provisions and say, well, the president is free to choose however he likes. Right? If he doesn't like one law and prefers to, an, to vigorously enforce another law, he's free to do so. Right? Uh, and, and to offer an argument that, well, given that law A conflicts with law B, I'm just going to choose law B and off I go. Um, if you want to put boundaries on the dis- 
president's discretion to make those sorts of decisions, um, it's you, 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 you often have to look outside of the Constitution to do so and to look at, well, what are the efforts of subsequent Congresses to limit executive authority? And you, right, you switch over from reading the core provisions of the Constitution to reading the corpus of law. Um, what you can expect, and this is the key point, what you can expect presidents to do, though, is to read deeply and broadly in their their uh, their their Article Two powers, and to undermine congressional efforts to put statutory limits on their authority. And you can expect that again because presidents are in this tough position where they're expected to do everything. They're, it's right in order to satisfy tomorrow's historians and today's public. Right. So what happens when uh, a president doesn't do this? Um, despite the fact that there may be an inevitability to it, it's not a requirement of the office to um, push out the boundaries, to create new institutional uh, offices like these policies are. You're not required to do it when you're sworn into office. Are there cases, uh, historical um, or, or theoretical, where a president would turn the other way and say, you know, upon uh, 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 entering office, I'm not going to appoint two dozen policy czars, or I'm not going to push the limits of my power to the extent that my predecessor did. You, you raise some of these cases in the book. So what happens when a president doesn't follow this impulse? Um, well, here the thing is useful to compare Taft to Roosevelt. And Taft, who argues on behalf of a much narrower reading of Article II powers, and and is not anywhere near as interested as Teddy Roosevelt in getting out in front of policy debates. And when you think about the reception that he got by the contemporary public and the way in which he's ranked among presidents, it doesn't right, it's it's he doesn't he doesn't stand out as one of the great presidents. Likewise with Hoover, who offers a very principled case for um for the president in particular and the federal government more generally not to get way out in front in um, intervening in the uh, in an economy truly in free, free fall. Um, and there again, this is a signature of, this is seen as a strike against him. So I talk about this in a couple of ways, and I have a section in the book where I, I, I kind of, I suggest that, that um, libertarians in particular are politically tone deaf when it comes to to the American presidency and presidential politics, because they offer a very principled reason for taking a narrow reading of executive authority and uh, the federal government's role more generally in, in public affairs. Um, but they don't stand a chance um, in, uh, in, in when they stand up against this wave of, again, extraordinary outsized expectations that the public has of the president. And then, as you alluded, we've got, I've got a whole chapter called What Failure Looks Like. And here I want to identify some cases where, you know, particularly during times of crisis, presidents were not seen to be way out in front, vigorously asser asserting their authority in, and offering solutions and defining problems. And this is, these were the low points of these presidents. This is when they really just were hammered politically. And so, um, 
You see that with regard to uh, Obama and the debt ceiling, in particular in, in the summer of 2011, when he was seen, rightly or not, as not taking a, a sufficiently kind of robust leadership uh, role in um, keeping the the, the um, in raising the debt ceiling. Uh, you see that with Bush in the aftermath of Katrina, and you see that with Carter with the hostages in Iran. These are all cases where the public perception, at least, was of presidents um, not vigorously asserting their authority, and they took it on the chin. Yeah, I, I suspect that the debate about Syria um, and, and what to do there relates in some ways to this, um, that no president wants to go down as having not intervened in a situation that, that history says intervention should have happened, um, that intervening too soon sometimes comes with um, uh, fewer risks in a, in a long-term sense. Um, so we, we do have the possibility of uh, a libertarian president being elected in the future, um, and we also have the, pre- uh, the possibility of greater and even um, more expansive presidency happening. You, you, you make the claim in the book, and, and I think you really follow through on this, that you're not, you don't have normative aims. In, in writing the book, um, but how do you how do you end things up here? Um, what do you ultimately make of uh, President Obama, for instance, taking this idea of the policies are and continuing to expand it, continuing to expand both in terms of numbers but also importance, for instance? Um, what are the limits? You write in the last chapter. I think that may even be the the title of your last chapter: limits. What are the furthest limits? that this can go, uh, before which presidents will hit upon something um, that they, the, uh, sort of an expansion of power that just uh, is, uh, can't happen? Well, I think we have yet to see what those limits are. Um, it'll be interesting um, to, to see how this plays out. I think, I mean, the, the broad contours of executive authority are, the, the broad, are, are ones of expansion. Um, and there are a variety of really important ways, I think, in which Obama has tried to push outwardly and innovatively on his authority, in particular in education policy, where you see him, um, through waivers, effectively dismantling the most important governing statute um, in education policy, No Child Left Behind. He's just stepping in, offering waivers to states, um, but demanding of them that they uh, introduce policies that 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 he would prefer, um, and that I'm re- I find very striking. This is a you know this is a, a president taking an existing legislative statute and dismantling it on his own. Um, and so, if I were to point to one thing that Obama is doing that's new in this long-standing project of modern presidents of expanding their power, that's the thing that that I would point to. We'll see how far it goes, and it may be that there that there may be a you know a public pushback five, ten, fifteen years hence. We haven't seen it yet. To the contrary, where presidents have suffered most is when they haven't exercised all the authority that's made available to them, and where they haven't vigorously assert, asserted their authority, in particular in times of crisis. I really enjoyed the book uh, a lot, and you, you're, you've mentioned a, a little bit some of your other interests. Um, this book is out now. Um, what's next on your writing agenda? Do you have a new book project that's underway, or are you 
launching into some other areas? What's what's on your summer writing list? Well, there, I, 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 you actually alluded, I alluded to one and you alluded to the other, um, though you didn't know it. Um, one is I actually want to write a bit on uh, No Child Left Behind and Obama's efforts to, I would argue, dismantle and and rehabilitate that governing statute in education policy. I think what's going on there is really, really interesting. It has lots of federalism issues. Um, it's got lots of separation of powers issues. Um, so that's uh, that's one item. The, the next is I actually want to pick up the normative argument. The, this book, thinking about the presidency, is trying to make sense about the way things are. We have a president that wants to push out outwards on the boundaries of their power, on, on, of their power. Um, now, is that a good or a bad thing? Do we want a more powerful president? And in, in this regard, I, uh, Terry Moe at Stanford University, he and I have been talking for a long time about writing a book about institutional reform and um, trying to tie in the issues of, you know, executive authority um, today with the kinds of challenges that the progressive space when they were arguing quite vigorously on behalf of a more expansive presidency. And we want to pick up their arguments and see how they might apply, apply today, which is very much a normative um, undertaking. Yeah, well, you'll, you'll have to promise to, to come back when those uh, one or two or, or multiple books is out. And until then, we have Thinking About the Presidency, The Primacy of Power to Read from Will. This is print, uh, published this year from uh, Princeton University Press and available widely. Will, thank you very much for your time today. Hey, thanks for having me, Heath. I really enjoyed it.